if I think about the things that that I was able to do and to catalyze, it's to build on the work of those who've, who've gone before and to hopefully make it easier for those who follow to get things done, to make a difference for our military healthcare beneficiaries, for our deployed force, and ultimately also for the public. Welcome to War Docs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand behind the scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state of the art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. On this episode, we are privileged to welcome retired Army Colonel Dr. Kent Kester to War Docs. Dr. Kester received his medical degree from Jefferson Medical College and trained in internal medicine at the University of Maryland. He then completed a fellowship in infectious diseases at the Walter Reed Army Medical Center. He then served as the infectious disease officer and chief of the serology section at RARE, the Walter Reed Army Institute of Research. He filled several roles at RARE, including chief of clinical trials, director of regulated activities, and ultimately served as the commander of RARE. He also was the consultant to the Surgeon General for Infectious Diseases and Clinical Research. He currently serves as the Vice President of Translational Medicine at the International AIDS Vaccine Initiative in New York. You can read his full bio at wardoxpodcast.com. I'm your host, retired Army urologist Doug Soderdahl, and I'm joined by Army vascular surgeon Dr. Kevin Neary. Today, we're privileged to welcome retired Army Colonel Dr. Kent Kester to Wardox. Kent, thanks for joining us today. Hey, guys, uh, really happy to be here. This is an important effort and uh, happy to talk with you today. So, Dr. Kester, tell us what led you to military medicine. Well, I was an Army brat. I had medical care as a kid at the Fort Holleberg Dispensary, a place that doesn't exist anymore. I had a sister who was born at the Bad Kreuznach Medac, which doesn't exist anymore. And in terms of family moving around, really had a lot of exposure to military medicine as a kid. Fast forward, applying to medical school, and even then, it was not inexpensive. And so the opportunity to compete for and to get accepted um, into an HPSP scholarship made a lot of sense. And so while I applied to both the Army and the Navy, I accepted the Army scholarship and the rest is history. And originally my goal was, which I believe is still the case, it's a year for a year after training. And my goal was to do that and, and move on. And as it turned out, it was almost 25 years career, which was, was a great ride and really enjoyed all of it. So you graduated from Jefferson Medical College, and then you did your medicine training at the University of Maryland, followed by a staff medicine job at Brook Army Medical Center. So training in the civilian sector and then coming to work in the Army system, how was that? How were you prepared, and, and what did you think? I think the training in terms of the skills was fine. I mean, it was immediately transferable. Medical care is and should always be the same across all these sectors. I think the, the one in, two interesting things when I when I showed up at at, at Bamsey in like the, the hottest part of July in 1989, when it had been really cold and rainy in, in Maryland after my residency, was well, it's really hot. I haven't done enough push-ups, and my hair is a bit too long. So all those things got fixed. But otherwise, there were no issues because the staff, the team. We're all on board with the same thing, to do the right thing for the patients. And it was, other than those few minor little things, it was the transition was really easy. So following your assignment to BAMSI, you did a fellowship in infectious diseases at Walter Reed Army Medical Center. 
Tell us about your decision to pursue additional training in infectious disease and the fellowship program at that time. When I was in high school and college, I spent a lot of time doing EMS type things. And so I always thought when I went to medical school that I would either go into emergency medicine or trauma surgery. Of course, at that point, I didn't realize I didn't really have very good depth perception. And as any surgeon would know, you really can't be down in someone's chest or someone's belly when you don't have good depth perception. So that went away. When I was in in medical school, I had great mentors uh, in internal medicine. And, And so then in my residency, it seemed like all my great attendings were infectious disease. So when I went when I went to Bamsey again I was still the mindset I'll just punch the ticket and move on. I was really privileged to work with with now retired Colonel Tim Endy who had just finished his residency at at Walter Reed in internal medicine. And he said I'm interested in ID also. And guess what? Walter Reed has a great program. I said really? I had no idea. And they have this place associated with it. It's called Rare. Really? I had no idea. So I applied and as it turned out as I learned it was a very competitive program, and, and so much so that there was kind of a waiting list, an unofficial waiting list. And so I applied twice, uh, and second time was a charm. In fact, Tim also was accepted, and so we were fellows together, and, and so we went to Walter Reed. And, and the nice thing was, it was really the best of both worlds. It was a huge amount of clinical experience, especially because in those days, all the HIV patients would go to MedSense. And the most complicated ones would always go to Walter Reed. So there was this ongoing program. And the fellows pretty much took care of all these patients. And then the other part of it was it was a three-year fellowship program, which I believe it still is. And it really worked out to be, if you kind of map it out, about a year, year plus a month or two of clinical and two years of research. And so the research was all at RARE, the Walter Reed Army Institute of Research. Where, where really cutting-edge military medical research in infectious diseases, other things too, although it wasn't relevant for us, was underway, whether it was in viral diseases, dengue, hepatitis, diarrheal disease, Shigella, ETEC, Campylobacter, parasites, Leishmania, malaria, et cetera. And so it was actually a really great opportunity to work with people who were well-published, but who weren't, these are people who had credibility both in academic world, but also in the military, because the difference in the research being done at RARE, then as in now, it's focused on military requirements. It wasn't just hobby research, just I have a cool idea and I'll retreat to my corner for 30 years and work on some enzyme. I mean, this was stuff that, that was focused on army needs. And so it was a nice opportunity to go back to the bench, so to speak, and to also be, be involved in research activities that had um, direct applicability to the military medical mission. Just a little aside, it was an interesting time because, as I mentioned before, the HIV program was was really on the upswing. There was a lot of work on leishmania from whether it was folks who had been down to the the former jungle uh, training center in Panama or people on deployments. And so we saw people there. And then it was also the dawn of Gulf War syndrome. And one of the most interesting things It seems kind of crazy now, but one of the most interesting things, my first day of clinic as a fellow, I I walked into the clinic at Walter Reed and and here was a camera crew and here were family members of of a patient who had some kind of Gulf War syndrome giving interviews to CNN. And, And I walk over and they said, and here's your doctor, 
Major Kester, what what is going on here? Anyway, so the reality is these people needed help. And whether or not they had infectious diseases or other things wrong, it, it was a lot of work. But it was, it was a really interesting experience. And I think one that, that most people don't get to get to deal with. So when I was a fellow, my research was at rare in, in what was then the Department of Immunology. And the major focus of that department was malaria vaccines, which for a long time was the DOD and the Army's top vaccine development priority. And so this was a group that had been working under Colonel Rip Ballou and, and others for many years, just laboring over multiple constructs. And eventually, maybe we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit later on, had a, had a fair amount of success. But it was a really interesting time. And so I, I was not a parasite guy before. I learned a, a lot related to malaria, uh, the care uh, of, of patients with malaria, the challenges, and really the challenges in developing vaccines for parasites for which nothing had ever been developed before. So it was it was a great time. So following that infectious disease fellowship, you stayed at the Walter Reed Army Institute of Research as the chief of the serology section. What kind of research were you doing at that time and what did that job entail? So you guys will appreciate this. In the Army, you're kind of the new guy and you're told, here's your job and kind of figure it out. And I'm being a little facetious, but so while well, I had been in the department for three years doing research, so now I was there for real. And so I was given two jobs. I was given a laboratory and it was a laboratory and it still exists that did all of the serology, basically the immune readouts for the malaria vaccine studies. And, and so it was a great team of civilians and had an NCO and a, and a junior enlisted soldier that, that worked with us in the lab. And so that was a lot of fun. And then I was also given, you know, the, the job of, hey, you're real, still clinically proficient. So we, we want you to, to sort of take the lead on some of these clinical trials. Now, when we're all attuned, I think, nowadays to the COVID vaccine trials and people get a series of shots and they get, they get bled and antibody levels are checked, et cetera. Pretty straightforward. Well, for malaria, you can measure all kinds of antibodies. And the problem is that they don't necessarily relate to protection. And so what, what we did at RARE was develop a human challenge model, which is now the, the global standard for malaria challenge. And it's basically where volunteers would come in under informed consent and they would be bitten by malaria-infected mosquitoes. I know, it's crazy, right? And these mosquitoes are raised in the laboratory, so they're quote-unquote clean mosquitoes. And, and so then you would follow them with daily testing, et cetera. And at the first sign of any evidence of malaria in their blood, usually before they had any symptoms, you'd treat them. And it's a very safe, when all the requirements are met, it's a very safe model. Nonetheless, it's still a little edgy. And even now, even though it's been exported to the UK, to the Netherlands, probably a few other places, it's still the pucker factor is not insignificant. Anyway, so, but because we don't have malaria in the US and because of the investment that's required to do real efficacy studies of a malaria vaccine on the order of millions of dollars, you want to get some, some functional clues whether or not they work. And so we would use the challenge model. People would get vaccinated, and then you would, at the appropriate time, challenge them, follow them, and see if they were protected. It, it was a really interesting learning curve. But in the end, I probably challenged throughout my career almost 600 people with malaria. So I got pretty good at it. But nonetheless, it was sort of interesting. Here are your two jobs run the serology lab, and be our clinical lead for our clinical trials. But that's okay. It was actually fun. And I was part of the team 
that moved from the old Building 40 on the Washington, D.C. campus of Walter Reed out to Silver Spring, the Forest Glen campus in 1999, where we had really nice labs, a nice insectary to raise mosquitoes, and a defined clinical trials facility as opposed to a hodgepodge of rooms in the basement of, of the old rare. So it was a lot of fun and learned a lot. And I think we made a real difference in advancing malaria vaccines. So just a quick question about the study design. Mm -hmm. Were people getting a placebo vaccine as part of the study, or did everybody get you know, one of the vaccines that you were looking at? Yeah, so that's a great question. So unlike the field trials where there were placebo, or I wouldn't say placebo, but not comparator vaccines that were not malaria, what we did was, and what's still done, is that you would have people who would be recruited to be what we would call infectivity controls. So they would get no vaccine because it's a biological system. So you're bitten by five mosquitoes over five minutes. Okay, you have no way of knowing for sure how effective the transmission was. All you know is that the mosquitoes bit and they would take them away, they'd kill them, they'd dissect them, so they had a, took a blood meal. So the infectivity controls would get the bites and you'd wanna show that they all got malaria or the early stage of malaria. Because if you didn't have those controls, and let's say you had, I'll make up a number, 10 out of 10 people protected, you could say, well, it's a great vaccine or your challenge model is screwed up. And so, so we would have infectivity controls and it's, it's a model that's persisted to the present. So from 1999 to 2001, you were the chief of vaccine development at Rare. Can you tell us a little bit about the experience you gained during that? What research questions were being studied at that time? And historically, what role does the DOD play in vaccine development? So the DOD has been involved in infectious disease vaccine development for decades. So some of the original work in influenza vaccine was done by the DOD. Albert Sabin, who we know from his time in working in polio as an army medical officer in the Philippines, did a lot of groundwork defining aspects related to dengue, dengue fever, which ultimately led to later on to work in, in dengue vaccine development. The meningococcal vaccine was developed at the rare. Real key work in Japanese encephalitis, yellow fever, uh, et cetera. All this has passed through the military system. So it's a long and very positive legacy that's relevant both for the military, for reasons that we all understand, but also for a global public, because these are diseases that affect not just the military. So I led the clinical vaccine development program for malaria vaccines. So that was the entire portfolio, all the different iterations and types of vaccines. And in many ways, it was just like what you see in industry as a sort of global project leader. It's like anything else in medicine. It's a team. So it's not nurses and PAs and clinical pharm pharmacists, et cetera, but it's a team of, of microbiologists and PhDs and clinical research nurses, et cetera. So it, it's the same concept. And so all these vaccine trials, all these vaccine candidates, it's all aligned then as now to DOD requirements and to hopefully get closer to meeting those requirements. One of the challenges, of course, for the military is because now I have this additional lens to look things through after working in industry. So if you, if you have a concept for a novel vaccine, the investment from flash to bang, from concept to licensure, is probably on the order of about a billion dollars. And if you have sustained investment, it's about 15 years. Now, we know, we've seen with the COVID situation, it's been a little different because of an available technology that lended itself well to more 
rapid work. A lot of the science was already done. And so a lot of the work was in production and the clinical testing. But the DOD has a lot of priorities in infectious disease. And so the challenge has always been how to leverage the modest investment from the DOD such that you can get key data so that then you can bring a partner to the table. Maybe it's another government agency, maybe it's industry, maybe it's a nonprofit like the Gates Foundation or something else. And so even as I was kind of developing the concepts for the clinical trials plans, it's also that sort of other strategy to leverage our funding, to identify co-development partners. And anytime you have partners, of course, your interests may not fully align. And so you, you have to find the point where, where the Venn diagrams mostly intersect. So both groups have benefit and then see how it goes. And I think ultimately the malaria vaccine that was our, our lead has a name of, or an acronym of RTSS. I, I believe the brand name is Mosquirix. Mo, I'll spell it. M-O-S-Q-U-I-R-I-X, made by GlaxoSmithKline, Mosquirix. We did all the enabling studies at RARE to move that to the field. And ultimately, through a patchwork of, of funding through Gates Foundation, PATH, other parts of the U.S. government, that vaccine now got favorable approval from the, the World Health Organization for kids in sub-Saharan Africa. Now, it doesn't quite yet meet DOD needs, but it's the first antiparasitic vaccine that's ever passed through a regulatory hurdle like that. And work is continuing to fine-tune that such that it can be more relevant for DOD and for adults. So on balance, it's a real success story. So speaking of the, the DOD relevance, we deploy to places that malaria is endemic. And so maybe having a vaccine for soldiers or people who go to those places often is something that we could consider in the future. How do you work with industry now that it's in the you know, civilian sector to say, hey, let's come back and, and look at it for the military? Yeah, part of it is, like anything else, it's relationships. And with the research relationships, we started work with GSK. I mean, it was before it was GSK, it was SmithKline, and then SmithKline Beecham, and then GlaxoSmithKline back in the late 1980s. So these are relationships, both inter-institutional or organizational, as well as personal professional relationships that go back decades. And so part of that is sort of the big picture, how you negotiate the plans. Of course, industry, it's all about the commercial value and, and how you maximize that. And I would be lying if I, if I said there, there weren't a few hiccups along the way. But nonetheless, I, I think it's, it's clear that people recognize that these are cutting edge innovations in public health. And each one, whether it's malaria or maybe a, a candidate vaccine for diarrheal disease, dengue or other things. They're all individualized relationships and negotiations and partnerships. And some go well and some don't. I mean, it's there have been a number of companies who were interested in malaria vaccines and then at some point their senior management said, you know what, we're done. It's nice to see when it, when it works out, but sometimes it doesn't. So sometimes in the DOD, people will say the world changed September 2001. How did things change in the research world for Army research and medical research when that happened? So a couple of things. Of course, there was obviously renewed emphasis on biodefense. 
after the anthrax attacks and things like that. And so our, our friends at USAMRID really got much more work to do, a wider variety of projects and activities, which makes sense as, as the then DOD Center of Gravity for Biodefense. It's really interesting, though. Sometimes, and I've, I've had this discussion with senior Army leaders that did not really have any experience with military medical research, and they said, well, why do we have these labs? Let's, let's get these people out in, in the clinic. And the point I, I would always make is, well, you know, the work that they're doing, it's not just research because these skills also have military relevance. Let me give you an example. So before the kickoff to the operational activities in Iraq, there was, there was intelligence and we never saw it, but this is what we were told, was that there was a risk of the deployment of, of a variety of biowarfare type agent, bot, plague, other things. So the idea was, well, let's get people together who know how to do clinical trials, who can administer under informed consent, because those are the rules, doesn't matter if you're in a theater of war, who can administer under informed consent investigational vaccines that the preliminary data looks pretty good and would give, for instance, special operators an edge if, if in fact, they got slimed. With, with stuff like this. And so, so where did they go? They went to USAMRID and they went to RARE and they got clinician scientists, they got clinical research microbiologists and other clinical trialists together. We wrote the protocols, we developed the plan, we shipped freezers and materials over to Kuwait in preparation for, for the kickoff. And in the end, I think it was a very successful operation. Now, the number of investigational products that were actually ultimately administered, I think the number was pretty low for a variety of reasons. But I think what it, what it showed was that these weren't just a bunch of bio nerds sitting in some, some out-of-the-way laboratory. They got the military mission, they understood the, the medical relevance, and they could easily integrate within the, the operational environment to make things happen. I think 90% of the people who were part of this activity had previous, previous deployments in a variety of capacities. So these were not people that were just out there not even knowing how to put their uniform on. I mean, they got it and they understood how to get things done. And I think it worked well. Maybe we'll come back to this, but, but I think it's relevant to your question. As the operational activities continued, both in Iraq and Afghanistan, it was very clear that in the dynamic sort of combat casualty care environment, the learnings related to sort of the, the response to, to traumatic injury, whether it's damage control surgery or, or some of the other initiatives related to whole blood transfusion, et cetera, really spawned a whole effort in theater-based medical research. Now, this wasn't laboratory-based. This was looking at innovative practices of care, of collecting data on outcomes, et cetera. And this type of stuff had never really been done to this level of rigor before, and importantly, under the oversight and umbrella of, of the ethical review of the institutional review boards. I think the important thing is, is that it was important military relevant research of different types. The skills were relevant in the field. And I think ultimately, especially having to do with, with the theater research teams, the relevance was not just for the military, but ultimately a lot of the, the data and analyses that resulted from that work has also benefited our civilian healthcare system as well. So over the next 10 years through 2011, you served as the chief of the Department of Clinical Trials, the director of regulated activities, and ultimately the commander of RARE. Tell us why you chose to stay within the Institute 
what were the major challenges and what was some of the major research that occurred at that time? Additionally, how are research questions developed and do they have to be linked somehow to an army or DOD concern? Well, all good questions. So why did I like to stay there? I guess maybe I was lucky. I mean, you, you guys know how, how the assignment processes go. The reality is, in certainly in my area, infectious disease, the, the slots are typically clinical and pretty much only at the med sends. I mean, some people have been uh, surgeons for different units, but that's not because of their infectious disease background, just because that's that's a position that they competed for. And then in the research areas, whether it's USAMRID or, or RARE, and occasionally some of the other places. And so at the time, I think that the staffing and infectious disease in the Army was, was really good. People stayed for 30 years. It was really good. The, the professional opportunities, the autonomy of, of practice, and the ability to get interesting things done, as well as providing quality care to the beneficiaries, was just great. And, and so there, there weren't a lot of needs to move people around. And so because of that, I was really lucky, was able to hone my skills and was able to kind of move through a fairly typical clinical slash medical research progression, starting out, as we talked about before, with a small lab and doing clinical trials, ultimately being the commander of the whole institute. Now, RARE was then and still is the DOD's largest and most diversified biomedical research institute. At the time that I was commander, at least when I started, we had you know, programs across all the major areas. We even had a select agent research program, but but then BRAC came along. We had to divest some of our programs to the to San Antonio to the ISR, and and so we had to kind of totally recast the institution and focus on the areas that we were left strongest within. And so that was infectious disease, which is of course my area, but also another one which was uh, military psychiatry and neurosciences. And so we we formed two centers. Part of its branding, so you can show it's not just a patchwork of departments and labs and things, but really sort of two branded centers. And so the, the infectious disease group was pretty obvious. It was all the vaccine efforts also included entomology, vector control, et cetera, and, and clinical trials. And then our really talented team in, in working in the area of TBI, the military psychiatry, and the whole area of, of just neurosciences in general. And I learned, I learned a lot because as the commander, while I was never going to be the expert, I needed to advocate for these people. And so when I would go down in the Pentagon or other places to talk about our programs, I, I needed to know something. And so the efforts that I, I think are, are really noteworthy of the neuroscience military psychiatry group led by people like Charles Hogue, Paul Bleasy, Carl Castro, Dennis McGurk, I mean, they went yearly into theater doing the MHATs, assessing the the psychological health of the deployed force and making actionable recommendations to the senior military leadership. Similarly, people like Frank Tortella and others were developing biomarkers to help us understand the implications of, of traumatic brain injury. And so what a wonderful opportunity to, to help support them in, in a very unique, uniquely military-focused mission. The ID part I knew inside and out. And so one of the nice things was then being the boss, although there were a lot of people much smarter than me in the Institute, was, was to try to harness resources to areas that perhaps were not being addressed. And so I'll give you an example. You guys probably both recall and know, as the operational activities continued, we started seeing more and more really complex wound infections, very resistant organisms. Remember the, the whole Acinetobacter story, et cetera. 
And some of that's related to the mechanism of injury and the use of a lot of antibiotics to the echelons of care, whatever, doesn't matter. But we, we saw this as a unique opportunity at RARE to leverage the, the strength and skills of our expert research microbiologists, our data scientists, and our infectious disease clinicians. So we started an effort called the MRSN, or the Multidrug Resistant Organism Repository and Surveillance Network. And this was led by Colonel Amo Lesho, he's retired now, and also an infectious disease physician, and ultimately was able, and, and it still exists, in fact, it is the only entity of its type in the entire federal government where we can track clinical data, antibiotic-resistant bacterial infections throughout the echelons of care, provide actionable feedback to clinicians, as well as epidemiology data back to senior medical decision makers, you know, at whether it's health affairs, OTSG, you know, whatever. And so that was that was really a homegrown effort. We were able to catalyze the DOD's response to the H1N1 influenza. So remember, this was the flu that came not from China, not from Asia, but instead from, from Mexico, from Latin America. And remember, people were talking about folks dropping dead in the streets in Mexico City and all this stuff. And interesting, you know, fact is that the first identification of, of one of the H1N1 strains was by the US military, by the Navy in San Diego, which, which is actually a really nice thing. But nonetheless, we catalyzed the DOD's response for diagnostics and rolled out a program with expertise and hardware and et cetera throughout the MHS. Ultimately, it got bigger than us, but, but we started that. We led the charge on on adenovirus outbreaks at Lackland and other places, again, because of our expertise in, in viral disease and viral diagnostics. We had the, the Leishmania Diagnostic Laboratory. One of the interesting things when I was a fellow and afterwards, well, it was really afterwards, where I would go into Walter Reed on rounds, especially on the weekends when I was on call as the attending, and I'd see all these guys lined up in the ID clinic with, with these various skin lesions because they were coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan because at that time, everyone was getting Aravac back to get treated with investigational therapy for leishmania. And actually at Rare, we had the diagnostic lab that, that didn't exist anywhere else in the world where we could we provided that data to the clinicians, which would then inform their, their therapy. And then I guess one other thing I would mention is on the ID side is now we have a licensed drug for severe malaria. It's called IV artesanate. For a long time, it was only available uh, through the CDC and the DOD. And the DOD was the major driver of this through our malaria drug group. And interesting odd fact, every anti-malarial drug that's been approved for use in the U.S. going back to the 1940s has passed through RARE at some point in its developmental life cycle. Now, maybe not the primary work, but they've all passed through RARE at some point in their developmental life cycle. So it's it's interesting and a, and a nice thing. I mentioned the work in, in neurosciences, and I think that, that that work speaks for itself. And there have been many monographs and books and everything written by members of the teams and, and beyond. And it's really, it's just amazing the, the work that they've done, and I think is very informative for deployment and combat operations for the future. I think one other thing I've just mentioned is that separate from all the cool science is that we lay the groundwork. So one of the things that the RARE has had probably since the mid to late 1980s is what we call a, a pilot bioproduction facility. What is that? that? That's a facility where you can make pilot lots of vaccines under FDA specifications so that you can actually test them in initial clinical trials. Now, these are not like 
millions of doses. This is on the order of maybe thousands of doses. And a lot of that ends up being QA for QA, QC, and stability testing and everything like that. But it gives you the ability to, to do those things. But when I was the commander, it was clear that that facility was really old. It was, while maybe in time it wasn't that old, the technology, the capabilities, the infrastructure was like the Stone Ages. So we laid the, the groundwork for that refit. And of course, given how funding is, it, it took a number of years. In fact, I was already retired but be, before the trigger got pulled, but that refit's done. And it is a state-of-the-art, flexible manufacturing facilities that can make a variety of biologicals, whether it's bacterial, antigens, viral, viral vaccines, and other things. It, it's really, it's quite nice. And so if you're ever there, it, it, it's worth a stop. It's worth a visit because it is really, okay, it, it's not industry scale but it's every bit as compliant as, as what industry would have. So it was a nice ride. I guess one really last thing is, uh, because we haven't really touched on it before, is one of the un unique aspects about military medical research are the overseas labs. And these are both in the Army's orbit and the Navy's orbit. And there's always there was always a dichotomy in that the Navy's labs were always funded in the core. So they were able to, you know, really... Uh, maximize and leverage their, their research dollars. On the Army side, for whatever reason, we had to fund our infrastructure out of our research dollars. Not good. So I, I spent probably about two years taking visits down to the Pentagon and giving briefing upon briefing. And I think in the end, they got tired of me and they said, <laughs> Colonel Kester, would you take $10 million a year? I said, absolutely deal. And that sort of solidified the infrastructure funding, which allowed then our labs in Kenya, in Thailand. At the time, we had a you know research operation in Germany, a small scale, to, to really, I think, blossom more in terms of getting things done without having to worry about the infrastructure funding. So it was a nice opportunity to try to make a difference during the three years that I was commander. So we know that Rare is not a deployable unit, and so it's unlikely that you were going to deploy as a commander. Did you ever have the opportunity to deploy to the theaters and OIF, OIF? I did. So, yeah, it didn't work out when I was commander. And when we had our deployed team, the so-called smart IND team that I mentioned before for the investigational vaccines, we split up in two groups. One group deployed, and the other group was supposed to go into Turkey well, that didn't happen for, for reasons that we understand. So after I rotated out of command and I was at, at the Uniformed Services University, I co-led an infectious disease team to Afghanistan where we evaluated every, not just U.S., but every NATO MTF, large and small, focusing on infectious disease, infection, infection control, and other aspects. And so it was it's not the same as, as being deployed and as being a caregiver, or in a leadership role at, say, a combat support hospital or something like that. But nonetheless, I think it was a valuable experience. And our takeaways you know, from that were, were directly factored into CENTCOM policy, having to do with those aspects. And those are things that we knew. So, so it was a good fit, and we were able to, to speak with authority. And the, the CENTCOM team were fully on board. I mean, it was a good activity, well worth the time, and I think in the end, the, the policies, and more importantly, the practices were well served. So you finished your military career as the Associate Dean for Clinical Research and sometime as the Acting Dean of the Uniformed Services University. Tell us a little bit about that experience. 
I had always been a faculty member at USU, I think from, from when I was a fellow. But so th- this was, an, and I had always taught medical students, precepted, et cetera. But this was an opportunity to actually be there for real. So this was a new position. And I think one that the, the dean at the time, Larry Laughlin, realized was kind of the missing link in the School of Medicine. And so the guidance I was given was was pretty pretty broad. Try to make something happen in clinical research, as I recall, was what he said. And if you ever interact with Larry, there's obviously a lot to unpack there. And, and he was a master of understatement. And so that was a clear order to try to make things happen. So I was there in that role about three years. And so, as I said, it was a new role. So my job was to try to facilitate and improve the activities related to clinical research in the School of Medicine. So this is everything in department of medicine, surgery, anesthesia, OBGYN, peds, the whole deal. And some departments had a lot going on and some were just starting out. And so I spent a lot of my time listening and and trying to ultimately to make connections. So we were able to establish a a clinical research unit at USU. It's still there. I think it's expanded now. I was kind of focused on clinical pharmacology, which was an area in the Department of Medicine, but but now it's it's broader. They can do other types of clinical trials. We were able to make connections with different institutes at the NIH, which is just across the street, for whether for funding or for shared projects that were relevant for clinical research. One of the challenges is that even though USU is right there on the Bethesda campus, in many ways, then, and probably still to a degree, although less so now, is that it could have been a different world. Just because you were a researcher at USU, and even if you were a clinician at at Walter Reed National uh, Military Medical Center, there was like a big barrier in between. And so it was really useful when Admiral Bono was in charge of JTF Cap Med then, was, was to try to break down some of those barriers to improve the IRB processes, which we understand are really important, but, but can also be a source of frustration for researchers, sometimes because the process is opaque, sometimes because it's overly bureaucratic, sometimes because the researchers just don't understand how it works or sometimes something else. And so it wasn't rocket science, but to try to deal with some of those things, then ultimately to facilitate clinical research in school of medicine. Because as the associate dean, I didn't own any of this stuff. I, I wasn't bringing in the money. I didn't have the projects or the ideas, but I was there to really facilitate this. And, and that work after I left, I think, was was further expanded by people who succeeded me, like Colonel Mark Cordepeter and and Colonel Todd Rasmussen, who followed, who, I mean, they, they, both of those guys had their own areas of, of emphasis and, and expertise, but I think really added much uh, to the clinical research environment, not just at USU, but, but at the whole Bethesda site and beyond. So you've had a remarkable and distinguished career, both in the military and then in the civilian sector. What areas of research do you think are critical for military medicine today in our national security given the significant issues over the past two years with COVID? So first of all, if you look at military medical research, it can't do everything, nor should it. And it has to focus on those things that are relevant for the military's needs. And historically and now, the areas of expertise are infectious disease, obviously trauma, and that whole sort of critical care research environment, neurosciences, these are really important areas. And these are complemented by epidemiology and and other elements within the broader medical research continuum. It's clear if you talk to the, the combat developers and the planners, 
they'll tell you what, what they're seeing as the risks. We know, for instance, what the endemic diseases are, that if, if we have to deploy people to sub-Saharan Africa in a big way, if we have to deploy people to South America in a big way, if we have to deploy people to parts of Europe in a big way, what would that mean? Where are our gaps in medical care? Are they in diagnostics? Yes, perhaps. Are they in particular areas where we have diseases that we can identify, but for which there are no treatments so that we need vaccines for? So I think a lot of the tropical diseases are still fair game. I think malaria is still an issue. When we talk about malaria vaccines, if you look at the if you look at the kind of the doctrine, the doctrine was never for a malaria vaccine to replace prophylaxis. It was to provide that backstop to prophylaxis because we know that if you have people, if you take 100 people that get, I don't know, a flu shot, not everyone responds, right? But if you if you had a, a prophylactic drug for flu, we don't really. But if but if you did have one that you gave every day and you lined up every day information said take your drug, some people won't. Right. And so you want to be able to complement both so that in the end you have solid protection. And I think these are the sorts of things that that military medical research on the ID side brings to the table. The other thing is that the capabilities. OK, so just because someone's working in viral disease or malaria or diarrhea, those skills in developing vaccines are really important. And I think there's a very timely example. You mentioned COVID. So the team at Rare leveraging the capabilities and expertise of their emerging infections group has developed a candidate COVID vaccine that is a pan-COVID or pan-coronavirus vaccine. Now, it's it's not ready for prime time. The definitive clinical trials need to be done. So we don't know. But that's a perfect example of how you leverage those skills and that experience to something that now is an urgent need. So I think that's critical. The other aspects having to do with trauma care and and neuroscience, we're still learning about TBI. And I think the military is uniquely positioned, whether it's in acute injury or the long-term assessment treatment of, of these patients, I, I think it's, it's a key aspect. And especially when we're able to partner with our colleagues in the VA who might be seeing a lot of these people longer term. And I think the trauma part, I think is obvious, but I think it, it should be mentioned as well because fortunately, we're not always in kinetic environments where we're having people injured, but nonetheless, we have a, a unique focus on that particular thing. And I think the experience of the in-theater research teams uh, accruing that data to help inform whether it's surgical practices in sort of the echelons of care and more, I think is really important and was never really done before. When you think about as, as surgeons, there's always sort of like the M&M where you hear about the what went wrong and what we could have done better, what we missed, et cetera. Well, I think one of the nice things, and I, this is a nice thing, the outcomes of these sort of prospective, mostly trauma-focused, but not solely in-theater research teams is to, is to generate more data that can then directly inform how we think about these patients and what we do differently going, going forward for the future. So I think this is something that as a large organization, the DOD is, and the Army is u- uniquely positioned to do. And one hopes that these types of activities and capabilities don't get lost uh, in the ongoing evolution and reorganization of the, of the MHS. Well, I can't think of a more qualified person to ask this next question to. What advice would you give to military medical professionals who are looking to make research part of their career? Yeah, that's a great one, because as consultant, as wearing two consultant hats, I would always get asked this about people that wanted to 
you know, get involved in research? I, I think there are a couple of things. First of all, and I kind of had this this idea when I was when I was a fellow. I thought, well, gee, I, I haven't done a lot of research. I, I don't I don't get this. But the reality is, if you want to learn and if you want to get things done, you're motivated you can be successful. So one of my mentors, now retired Colonel Ray Chung, who's now a senior executive in the VA, but at the time was the chief of infectious disease at, at Walter Reed, he had a very useful observation. So he he had gone through his fellowship also in ID. And and when he finished, there was this idea, we need to put an ID doc at Fort Leonard Wood. And Ray was the guy. And he said, really? <laughs> okay, that's fine. Take one for the team. And, and so he went down there. And I for a year. And, and it was not, I think he worked really hard, provided good care, but for, from a, for, it's like sending a thoracic surgeon to, to a, a remote medic. And, and so in the end, it was pretty clear that that was an experiment. Okay, glad we tried, but let's move on. And in the end, Ray wanted to do research when he came back. And ultimately he was able to do that. And he did that for a number of years and then came back to Walter Reed proper and was the chief of ID. But his, his advice and guidance was, if you do a good job and you understand what you want to do, you got to be persistent because ultimately, and we know this, the needs of the service come first, of course, their slots and their needs and, you know, et cetera. But if, if you do a good job and you're persistent, you should be able to get what you want. And so I think my guidance to junior officers always was, you got to let people know what you want to do. You have to always do a good job. You recognize it may take a while, um, but if ultimately that's your passion, it should work out. And I think in most cases it does. And for those that really aren't that interested, it just like seemed like a cool idea for, for a short period of time. Well, that's fine. They move on and it, and it doesn't happen. So I think that's kind of the key is persistence. And let's face it, there's also luck. I, I was really lucky. And my guess is if I were in the same position now as a graduating fellow, probably my, my career path would not be quite the same. But that's life. Things evolve. Organizations evolve. The military evolves. But it was a great ride. And quite frankly, moving from the Army to industry, it's pretty easy. Teams, mission, focus, deliverables, timelines, very straightforward. Highly competent people, highly motivated. And so other than, I guess, having to think a little bit what I have to wear, well, what I had to wear each day, it was it was very similar. A little bit better budget, though. And if you look at the people who have passed through military medicine and military medical research, the legacy is huge. Going back to Billy K. Ashford, General Sternberg, Phil Russell, who Major General Phil Russell just died about a year ago, who had been commander at the previous incarnation of the Military Research Development Command, was responsible for securing the, 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 the Ebola-infected monkeys in Northern Virginia. Talk about, a, talk about a leader. He was willing to stick his neck out. But Walter Reed, Malcolm Artenstein at Rare, who developed the meningococcal vaccine that, that people get now in basic training, Ed Tremont, who later on developed, ran the Division of AIDS at NIH, just a, just a Phil lawyer in entomology, Nelson Michael, who led the military infectious disease research, the military HIV research program at Rare, even other people who've been in the news, perhaps in some challenging times, not all of which of their making, Bob Redfield, CDC director, Debbie Burks, in part of the, the COVID response, Alan McGill, who, who at Rare, and then later on developed Bill Gates' strategy to eradicate malaria worldwide. And that's just scratching the surface. And, and so th I think the point is that the history of the contributions are greater and the opportunities for, for junior officers and enlisted soldiers too. There's a lot to do. And so while the organizations evolve, Funding evolves, priorities evolve, the scientific 
medical needs for the service don't go away. And we have more tools and, and more opportunities to make a difference. And so I think that's that's kind of how I, I, I've always viewed it and how I've always tried to pass along to more junior people as they contemplate their career paths. So our mission here at Wardox is to preserve the oral history of military medicine told from the perspective of those who've been there, done that. And so the nice thing about a podcast is that it's electronic. It will last for a long time. And so a hundred years from now, what would you want people to hear about your legacy in military medicine? Well, I, I think my legacy, it's not about me. I've done a lot of things, of course, but I think my legacy is, is, is to have made a difference in helping to facilitate solutions that I think ultimately benefit not just the DOD, but but to public health. And, and to those, I point to our groundbreaking work in, in tracking antimicrobial-resistant infections, in new paradigms in, in patient care, whether it's infectious diseases or in other parts of clinical care related to deployment-related activities. And also, I think, in trying to positively influence policy such that the work in the DOD, which is highly relevant Again, not just for the military, but also beyond. So that really has a place in sort of standing on the shoulders of those who've gone on before. Medical research, it is incremental. I mean, yes, you you can have a few people who win the Nobel Prize or, or the equivalent based on their seminal discoveries and accomplishments. But in, in most cases, it's stepwise. It's someone builds on the work that someone else has done, and, and then someone else builds on that work, and someone else builds on that work. And that's how it is. And so if I think about the things that, that I was able to do and to catalyze, it's to build on the work of those who've, who've gone before and to hopefully make it easier for those who follow to get things done, to make a difference for our military healthcare beneficiaries, for our deployed force, and ultimately also for the public at large. As I said before, it's not about me. It's about trying to help make the organization get things done and to help facilitate the work of those important smart people in the organization who are positioned to do that work. Well, we've been speaking with retired Army Colonel Dr. Kent Kester. Kent, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights with us on War Docs, and thank you for your service to our nation. Well, thanks so much. Really appreciate the opportunity to talk. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of War Docs, the military medicine podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please rate and review this podcast and share our show with your contacts on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests and how to become a member of Team War Docs on our website, wardocspodcast.com. That's WarDocsPodcast, one word, dot com. Thanks so much for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, WarDocs has you covered. Spread the word.